0: Hello. Today's episode will be the take-home messages from AUA 2019 in basic sciences, both benign and malignant.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lynch, Dr. Densted, AUA members and guests, and I'd like to thank the organizers of the AUA for an excellent meeting, a very well-organized meeting with excellent basic science research to discuss. This has become quite a Herculean task in recent years to give highlights and, and um, take-home messages, as the Quality of basic science research and the amount of high-quality research continues to increase at the AUA. We had 10 poster or podium sessions at the AUA on basic research benign um, this year. Um, In addition to those sessions that focused on stone disease, BPH, stem cells, infections, urodynamics, and fertility and function. In addition to that, we had the SBUR afternoon breakout session. Uh, The AUA Office of Research and the SBUR co-hosted a basic science symposium on signaling networks. Uh, and the AOA office also hosted the Early Career Investigators Showcase, which was outstanding as it always is, and the ROC Society is meeting right now. Uh, much of that work is also basic science uh, on kidney stones. Now the overall arching theme through research at this meeting follows a typical kind of theme that one might see for basic research. There's a clinical need for patients. Researchers then develop models, expand the resources available, and then apply them to discovery and ultimately we all hope to apply to patients for their treatment. I'd like to emphasize this center section of this theme because it truly was outstanding this year at the AUA. A lot of this model development and the application development of resources to be used by across the field of biological research within urology has been handsomely funded by high NIDDK investment through the the form of individual grants, but especially through the development of the O'Brien Centers and others. And mechanistically, the themes of this meeting seem to fit into categories that involve cell lineage, cell-to-cell communication, host-to-microbiota interactions, metabolism, and aging. So if you start with stone disease, for example, outstanding models are being developed for nephrolithiasis in uh, fruit flies, Drosophila. Um, here's a model from Katie Al et al in on Ontario um, in which they've developed a way to use the fruit fly to develop, uh, to, that, that develops stones, uh, and they use a gas immobilization so that they can image the stones properly and then study the interactions and different compounds that may interrupt those interactions for stone formation. For example, they continued their work with the work of E. coli on urolithiasis in the fruit fly, and by Bjasevich et al, in a few posters later, it was truly excellent work. The microbiome played a big role in stone disease this year at the AUA. Um, Dr. Wu and Dr. Miller both investigated with excellent posters, very well received within the stone disease basic science sessions. And beyond the microbiome, uh, the Chong group out of Rochester studied the role of the androgen receptor and in inflammatory signaling in stone formation. I'd like to highlight Victor Conella from the Williams Lab at Indiana University who presented in the session as well as in the Early Careers Investigator Showcase on his excellent role identifying the proteome within stones, calcium oxalate stones specifically, and how diverse the protein population is within those stones, something that many of us had no idea about. And going on right now, as I had mentioned, the rock Society is going on, I very look forward to seeing what Kyle Wood has to say on obesity fitting into the theme of metabolism and the development of stones. Moving on to BPH, basic science, I'd like to highlight the work of Pittsburgh uh, that Laura Pascal has been doing. As many of you know, uh, the bladder responds to BPH and a lot of the models that we have for BPH do not accurately predict this or recapitulate this. This is a model in which she developed in which they downregulated regulated here and only in the prostate, and the bladder had consequences. The bladder had thickening, it had fibrosis, um, whether or not there was obstruction from the model or not. So this is a great model that was developed that would be able to look at the, the inflammation, the inflammatory networks, the cell-to-cell communication and thickening of the bladder from a pla- prosthetic source similar to what we might see in BPH. In addition to that, the BPH basic science session involved work from Dr. Shu, Dr. Yamanaka, and Dr. Strand. Um, the Shu and Yamanaka work focused on what is becoming um, the mechanism of uh, uh, that's hot in terms of BPH right now, which is the estrogen to testosterone ratio, uh, and Yamanaka, in particular, applying selective estrogen receptor modulators and treating that. I want to highlight what Dr. Strand has been doing at Texas because I think it highlights this concept of developing models and the development of resources that is so highly and uh, funded and supported by the NIDDK right now. Now, Dr. Strand has been identifying individual cell types associated with human BPH from his expansive uh, collection down at UT Southwestern. He's been collecting with Dr. Rearborn down there. Now they knew they had a fibroblast population, but what they didn't know until recently is that they had a 5-alpha reductase positive and negative population in their fibroblast. And it turned out uh, that one population, the positive, are those that produce collagen in the stroma of BPH versus the negative ones. This was then done into a collaborative group. This is the the previous population in which they've been able to sort. And the collaborative group that's supported by the NIDDK as part of the O'Brien Center Initiative, specifically the one at Wisconsin, in which they are comparing the cell type lineages uh, from the mouse to what is seen in the human. And sure enough, they're able to show that the 5-alpha reductase positive fraction of the stromal cells are collagen producing can drive fibrosis in the rodent model. It's a true correlative between the translational research between what came out of humans to the mouse and then now the disruption back of that pathway to try to prevent fibrosis in the formation in prostates uh, in patients going forward. The O'Brien Center at Wisconsin also involves um, bladder work. Here's an example of a model that was developed as part of that in prostate, but Dale Buerling has applied it to the bladder and found that microRNAs might be useful in the disruption of bladder fibrosis. Work out of Korea and in Pittsburgh, uh, continue a lot of this work, looking at cell-to-cell interactions. That includes the interactions between the nervous system and the epithelium, as well as other resident tissue. Um, and, the, and Dr. Birder's work with uh, and Amanda Johnson at Pittsburgh uh, looking at mitochondrial damage as part of met- metabolism models, uh, finding out imp- very important uh, aspects of the biology through those models. Uh, and then Kelly Walker as part of Tom Lew's group at UCSF looking in diabetic models and injury uh, with, with actually uh, S-WAL uh, and using that as a way to improve repair and recovery. Um, secondary to BPH. Beyond that, Luke Gundy from Australia has used E. coli infection isolates uh, to then, as sensitizers for nociceptors, identifying that remnants of infection that may not currently have to be there can promote nociception and pain. And I'd like to highlight Sarah Bartolona from uh, Laura Lamb's group at Royal Oak. Uh, this work uh, involves clotho deficient mice, these mice age. This model may be applicable to many different diseases in urology because aging is a big part of what a lot of us do. And I would be remiss if I didn't highlight Dr. Nathan Taikaki's work. Nathan more or less stole the show with oohs and Oz yesterday at the Early Investigators Showcase in a way in which he can image rodent bladders thickness throughout the bladder from top to bottom and then apply it for ways in which to disrupt it. A new investigator at Michigan State. I'd like to highlight in terms of infection and the corollary to pelvic pain, uh, Dr. Praveen Thimbakats lab at Northwestern. Uh, Praveen's group has been identifying the signaling networks between the inflammatory cells that promote pain in the lower urinary tract during infection and inflammation. One of the ways in which he's been able to generate this model is through the CP1 bacteria, and it induces the type 2 cytokine response that promotes pain. One of the things that's very interesting and very insightful and very inspired from thrombine is using the type 2 cytokines, he developed a hypothesis that perhaps if we we can use the type 2 effect, perhaps we can then trigger the immune system, kind of like in combination with immunotherapy, uh, to fight off tumors in a graft model. This is a benign section. I won't talk a lot about it, but I will tell you, keep your eye on CP1 it seems to be acting a little bit like a PCG analog, but in prostate cancers in these preclinical models. Stem cells had a big presence as they always do, and the typical elegant work that we would expect from the Domicer lab rose to the top. Um, they, they worked with some exosomes as part of the secretosome from the injured stroma of, of, uh, within kidney, um, and found that elements of that secretosome in exosomes uh, help repair following ischemic injury. Um, and then in addition to that, Dr. Park out of Korea used exosomes from adipose uh, as a recovery mechanism uh, in erectile function following cavernous nerve injury. Now speaking of sexual function and dysfunction, there was a lot of excellent work surrounding stem cells and cell-to-cell communication in that section as well, including that of Dr. Yang, Dr. Van Horn out of, um, out of Wake Forest, and great work from Shelby Powers from Greenville. And finally, with fertility, uh, Dr. Haydn uh, from New York, the stem cell gene SOX2 is found uh, to be involved in infertility and Sertoli-only syndrome. And then I also would like to highlight the group from Rome, uh, the 25-hydroxycholesterol as a marker of sperm function from the fertility. Again, thank you for your time and this opportunity. On behalf of the AUA and SBUR and basic science researchers across the world, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, and welcome to my hometown of Chicago. I hope you have enjoyed your time here at the AUA. Uh, The basic and translational research was well represented here at the AUA in 2019. This included over 150 moderated posters or podium sessions related to both the basic science or translational research and cancer. Uh, Key highlights of this meeting were the Urologic Oncology Research Symposium on Metabolism and Cancer with an excellent keynote by Dr. Max Loda. Uh, the Society for Basic Urologic Research and to the Society for Urologic Oncology Joint Session, as well as uh, D- Dr. Arya Alumi's uh, great talk on the highlights of urologic oncology research. Sequencing and sequencing technologies continues to uh, redefine how we think about genital urinary uh, diseases, as, including uh, development, and the maintenance, regeneration, inflammation, repair, and uh, even in diseases such as cancer. Um, In particular, the new technology of single cell RNA sequencing is revolutionizing uh, the way we think about many of these things and brings a level of of, um, uh, uh, dynamics and um, uh, heterogeneity that we haven't been able to observe in the past. Imagine taking a beehive and being able to sequence every bee in that hive. Uh, so this incredibly enabling technology is really changing the way we think about most diseases. Uh, here is a great example from Stanford University. This is looking at bladder tr- the bladder tr- transcript on our bladder tissue from both uh, normal, uh, normal healthy donors as well as normal tissue from patients that had uh, a bladder tumor within there. And they show that even between normal cells, between these two populations of cells, there were notable differences in um, luminal markers. And so even the, the, within the normal cells from both normal healthy bladder, as well as uh, bladder from, from uh, tumor containing tissues, you see significant differences. So this is changing the way we think about uh, not only how we can, can diagnose and treat bladder cancer, but also understand, the, uh, understand how we design experiments. Uh, Staying in bladder cancer with relation to tumor heterogeneity uh, and the mixture of cells within a particular tumor, understanding how particular transcription factors regulate tumor heterogeneity has become an important topic. So here we have work out of Penn State Hershey looking at the FOXA1 transcription factor. This is a pioneering factor uh, that's heavily involved in maintaining and regulating bladder tumor heterogeneity. Uh, Here we're looking at hypermethylation of this gene is decreased in tumors that are less heterogeneous. And so this brings up potential regulators of bladder hetero- or tumor heterogeneity as key targets in uh, cancer research. The preclinical modeling and the development of new therapies heavily relies on basic research, uh, particularly with the advent of new immunotherapies in bladder cancer. Here we have a study out of Duke University looking at uh, combining immunotherapy with both photothermal therapy and gold nanoparticles. The utility of gold nanoparticles is that they can deliver things like nucleotides to cells. So here, we, here they show that there's no significant toxicities with these gold nanoparticles, and they are processed in the liver and spleen, but don't appear to cross the blood-brain barrier. So uh, preclinical modeling in animals uh, is enabling multimodal, technolo- multimodal therapies in order to be developed. Moving to uh, renal cell carcinoma, genomic studies are significantly changing the way we think about and will be diagnosing and treating renal renal cell cancer. Here we have a study from Memorial Sloan-Kettering using genomic sequencing uh, that identified both the SCTD2 gene as well as the TP53 gene or the classic P53 oncogene that changes or mutations within these genes at the time of cytoreductive nephrectomy was heavily associated with uh, the presence of metastasis at that time. So studies like this with genomics technologies are really... uh, providing not only new targets for disease but also new biomarkers that can inform decision making at the time of uh, surgery as well as uh, re- redefining precision medicine approaches for cancer. Uh, staying in the realm of uh, renal cell carcinoma, uh, basic research has shown that uh, certain modifiers of drugs, here we have an example from the Lukashwar lab at the University of or Augusta University, this protein called A9 actually, has actually been established to inactivate sorafenib. Uh, And and, uh, a non-toxic oral inhibitor of A9 uh, called HC was combined with serafinib to show that it had increased efficacy in serafinib alone. So such approaches like like, uh, shown here can be used in um, uh, precision medicine approaches for patients who perhaps have a high A9 expression in their renal cell carcinoma to be combined with something like serafinib to enhance the therapeutic efficacy. Moving to prostate cancer, the field effect continues to really dominate the way we think about the field. So here we have a methylation study looking at normal tissue again, uh, but, and again with patients who had uh, no tumor present versus tumor present. And here uh, out of Gerard's lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, they looked at DNA methylation from these histologically normal biopsy specimens. Uh, so these are biopsies with no presence of tumor, but show that when a tumor was present somewhere else in the prostate, there was significant uh, uh, increased heterogeneity among the methylation markers compared to when a tumor was not present. So studies like this, this this study was nice that it showed that the methylation variation could in fact be utilized as a biomarker for detecting prostate cancer even when in a biopsy specimen that was negative for cancer. Uh, Health disparities in prostate cancer continues to be a major focus and an important area of, of future need for research here we have a study out of, uh, uh, fr- emanating from Johns Hopkins looking at a genome alteration and deletions in certain genes in men of African-American descent. So here, this study, they looked at a, a cohort of men with the genomic sequencing on 205 men with long-term follow-up and showed that mutations in P53, CDKN1B, and the overall burden of copy number alteration, so the overall accumulation of mutations, were associated with an increased risk of metastasis. And importantly, these deletions or more common in younger men with uh, higher grade uh, and stage disease. These types of studies highlight the need for continued inclusion and diversity in our tissue collection protocols, as well as inclusion in clinical trials and research approaches. Genetically engineered animal models continue to be a very important component of basic research in cancer. Uh, Here we have a study out of the University of Iowa looking at luminescence, bioluminescence imaging, so firefly luciferase, Uh, detection in prostate tumors that have have a conditional deletion of both the P10 and P53 tumor suppressor genes. These tumors are fast-growing. These tumors are castration-sensitive, but when um, uh, allowed to age, do become castration-resistant. And it's models like these that represent what we observe in the human setting that allow us to do better and more effective preclinical imaging uh, for novel therapeutics. And finally, the androgen receptor in prostate cancer continues to be a central target, uh, uh, particularly now with the advent of uh, the ARV7 and AR splice variants, which are uh, resistant or confer resistance to common drugs like enzalutamide or abiraterone. Uh, so novel approaches to target the androgen receptor are still a very important focus in the field. Uh, here we have work out of Marion Sadar's lab at the University of British Columbia, developing a a, a target, a therapeutic target to target a different part of the androgen receptor in a way that would target both the splice variants and the full-length. Uh, so to summarize some of the key take-home messages, uh, one, the study of epigenetic and genetic correlates of critical genes will enhance our understanding of tumor biology, enable more precise approaches for screening, diagnosing, and treating urologic malignancies. Omics-based approaches, so genomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics approaches, Uh, can and will be used to identify novel malignancy drivers to test the impact of new candidate compounds and to fill the gaps in our understanding of cancer racial disparities. Single cell RNA sequencing is a powerful new technology. We'll hear a lot more about it in the years to come, and it's already changing how we understand urologic tissues and tumors. Preclinical animal models and imaging approaches remain critical to the progress of basic cancer research. And yet we still continue to develop new and more efficacious ways to inhibit classic targets like the androgen receptor. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to our podcast on Google Play and on iTunes. Remember that we are also starting an Ask the Experts section. So any questions you're looking to have answered by urology experts, please email them
0: to education at auanet.org.